You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thank you all for getting up early this morning to start your day with skin and kidneys. Uh, I don't have... I don't have an inspirational quote for you, but uh, I, love, I love skin because it can tell us about what's going on inside the body. That's why I went into dermatology. Um, I like to kind of be that, that doctor house kind of person that can look at, look at the skin and figure out what's going on. Um, and so this morning, I know that there are a number of talks where we're looking at skin signs of conditions going on elsewhere in the body. Um, so we'll, I'll be kicking that off by talking about skin manifestations of kidney conditions. I have no conflicts relevant to this to disclose. So we have a few objectives this morning that we're going to try to go through. I was thinking, you know, there are lots of skin and kidney overlaps, actually. So I was trying to think of a of way to kind of organize this. So we're going to start by talking about um, skin manifestations that are more common in people with chronic kidney disease. So these are things that you may see in somebody who doesn't already know they have kidney disease, but more often already has known kidney disease, um, and they're being referred over to you by their kidney specialist for assistance. We're going to talk about um, skin findings of inflammatory or systemic diseases that can also affect the kidneys. So this is where we get to kind of be that detective where we see something on the skin, make a diagnosis, and know, ooh, you know what, there could be something going on elsewhere in the body, in this case in the kidneys, that we should be looking for even though the patient may not already be aware of a kidney issue. There are some genetic diseases that have skin and kidney overlap, so we'll talk a little bit about those. Um, We're going to talk about people who have had kidney transplants because they have some specific skin issues that we're all going to be taking care of as well. And then there are medications that we prescribe that can have some kidney side effects that are important for us to know about as well. And then we're going to wind up just talking about how there are some times where the skin can be a sign of kidney cancer, so things we can pick up um, perhaps to make an earlier diagnosis or allow people to get screening um, who are at higher risk of kidney cancer. So let's start off with skin manifestations of chronic kidney disease. We're going to do a little question first. So which of, these is, uh, this, which of these common skin findings is common in patients with renal disease? Uh, alopecia, hypopigmentation, hyperhidrosis, xerosis, or excessive sebum production? Terrific. So I think a lot of you have taken care of people who have kidney problems. The correct answer is xerosis. It can affect up to, in some some estimates, 90% of patients with end-stage renal disease will have dry skin. Um, And it can be incredibly debilitating for some patients. Um, When your kidneys are not functioning well, you don't really have 
kidney symptoms. You don't have kidney pain. But patients' quality of life will be perhaps really adversely affected by things like dry skin and itch. So it may seem unusual that they are so focused on something like their itchy, dry skin when they are suffering from end-stage kidney disease, but this is what really seems to have the the bigger impact on their quality of life in many cases. Um, Some other manifestations of chronic kidney disease um, include pigmentary changes. So there are some pigmentary changes, and um, so if you chose hypopigmentation, that's not entirely wrong. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, there are nail changes. There is a skin condition called calciphylaxis, which is fortunately quite rare, but is um, associated with a really high mortality rate, so important to be able to recognize um, There are things called perforating disorders, uh, and then conditions uh, that cause blistering on the skin, porphyria, cutanea tarda, and pseudoporphyria. So as I said, dry skin can affect the vast majority of patients who have end-stage kidney disease. Um, And unfortunately, even when those patients are on dialysis, it does not improve. So saying, oh, you're going to start dialysis soon, your dry skin's going to get better, is is not actually true. Um, It's typically accompanied by pruritus. So patients with end-stage renal disease are generally very itchy people. Um, Why this is happening, there are a number of different theories um, that perhaps it could be due to this uh, fragmentation of elastic fibers that may occur because of uremic toxins that build up, um, sweat glands may atrophy, um, there can be some vitamin abnormalities when the kidney is not functioning. It's, it's not really clear though, um, but the fact is it happens to most patients with end stage renal disease. Um, and additionally, these patients are frequently on diuretics, they're having all kinds of changes in their volume status, and that perhaps plays a role in the, the dry skin. There's nothing magical about treating xerosis in these patients that's any different than treating the dry skin in any of our other patients. Um, But I think it's just really important to address this. Sometimes a patient may come in and you notice their dry skin, you know they have kidney disease, but they haven't brought it up. Discussing how to take good care of their skin can have a big impact on their life. They they may not feel it's important enough to ask you about, um, but ask them about it. Uh, because it does have such a quality of life impact. Itch. Itch is that other thing that has a dramatic impact on quality of life, and it too affects most of our uh, chronic kidney disease patients. Again, lots of theories about why this happens to our patients, but we don't, we don't really know uh, the reason that these patients get itchier than average. Pruritus can manifest in a number of different ways. So if you see a patient where all you're seeing are scratch marks, excoriations, but no primary lesions, um, that's a sign of pruritus. They may have more localized areas of lichenification. uh, And kidney patients will sometimes get widespread parigo nodules. So all of these can be visible manifestations of that pruritus that can be really distressing to patients, too, because now the outside world can see that they have a problem as well. Um, It's usually generalized pruritus that patients with kidney disease experience. 
We all know that managing itch is really challenging, uh, and that's certainly true in these patients as well. Um, it's important to make sure you're reinforcing that they're working with their primary care doctor, their nephrologist, to really optimize um, their metabolic parameters, their electrolyte status, their nutrition, all of those things can be helpful. So kind of explaining that taking good care of their kidneys also can help with this skin issue. Um, and then we're left with the kinds of things we try for anybody else who has pruritus, antihistamines, gabapentin. Interestingly, phototherapy can be quite helpful, narrowband UVB, for some patients with renal pruritus. So that's always something to consider if someone's really struggling uh, with itch who has kidney disease uh, and you know, you're not adding another systemic medication. Uh, opiate receptor modulators have been utilized and may be helpful as well. Um, and it's important to remember that it, the kidney problem may not be the only reason that these people have itch. So itch is a symptom of, potential symptom of a lot of other systemic conditions. So um, don't just chalk it all up to the kidney problem. Remember that there are other things we might want to look into for somebody who has just intractable pruritus um, without any kind of primary skin disease that we can see skin manifestation. And, and check, do they have thyroid disease? Is there a liver issue? Are there hematologic problems? Um, so there are other reasons to have generalized pruritus, and just always keep that in the back of your mind. I mentioned pigmentary changes, and hypopigmentation was one of those answer choices. Um, pallor is common, so I don't know if that's truly hypopigmentation, but, but it is. It's a lighter skin color. Pallor is common because patients with kidney disease often develop anemia. So you may see a little bit of a pale skin color, um, which can improve if they're adequately treated for their anemia. Um, they can also kind of get this yellowy color, and it turns out there are these liposoluble pigments that normally the kidney helps us clear that can build up in the skin in patients with kidney disease. Um, so if you start to notice some of your patients who have chronic kidney disease, you might notice that they have this, this slight yellow hue to their skin. Um, or they maybe have a little bit of a hyperpigmentation to their skin uh, because they get an increase in melanocyte-stimulating hormone, and so sun-exposed areas can look a little darker. And these issues don't actually change regardless of whether their kidney disease is being managed with dialysis or not. Um, so just some general changes. They may ask you, you know, why am I getting more tan than I used to? Um, and it's related to that kidney issue. Nail changes. So the classic nail change seen in chronic kidney disease is called half-and-half half nails, or Lindsay nails is another name for the same thing. Um, and these fingernails look kind of whitish right by at the, the proximal, really two-thirds, and then kind of get this reddish-brown distal end. Um, and this is due to increased melanin actually in the nail plate distally. Um, so this is a... This is a very classic sign of kidney disease. So again, something that patients may not come in and specifically ask you about, but that you may notice uh, in patients and start just looking for it in patients that you know have kidney disease so you start to recognize it. And then you might actually pick something up before somebody knows that they have a kidney problem. Calciphylaxis. 
Calciphylaxis is that condition that I mentioned that has a high mortality rate, so it's rare, but it's something we all need to recognize because of that high mortality rate. Um, this is a condition that we usually see in patients who have uh, renal failure that's associated with abnormalities in their calcium and phosphate levels. It's called uremic calciphylaxis. They usually have late-stage kidney disease, uh, but occasionally can be seen in patients who don't have renal failure. Uh, and sometimes they'll even have normal or calcium levels. That's called non-uremic calciphylaxis. So Seeing a patient who has calciphylaxis doesn't automatically mean kidney disease, but usually does. This is what I was talking about with that poor survival. One-year survival rate, about 45%. Two-year survival, only 20%. So calciphylaxis is a poor prognostic sign in patients with kidney disease. Um, and the majority of patients who have calciphylaxis, the, the cause of death is sepsis. And we'll, we'll look at why that might be in a second. Um, patients who develop calciphylaxis while they're already getting dialysis actually have a worse prognosis. Um, and patients who have very widespread calciphylaxis where it's on both the proximal and distal extremities also have a worse prognosis. So what does calciphylaxis look like? How are we going to recognize it? Um, it is this sudden onset and rapidly progressive uh, purpuric kind of stellate plaques on the skin that ulcerate and then develop these hard black eschars over those ulcerations. It is very, very painful, so patients will have a lot of discomfort associated with this. It's most often on the lower extremities, the proximal part, like the thighs, um, and sometimes the proximal parts of the upper extremities, but more often lower, and on the fatty areas of the trunk. So proximal disease is more common. Um, as I said, if they have distal disease, lower legs, forearms, that's associated with a worse prognosis. But these expand very quickly, and they get very, very deep, these ulcers. So here's an example of that. I mean, this, these are very, very deep proximal ulcers. You see this purple border that's, that's as it's advancing. Uh, so you may think a little bit of like pyoderma gangrenosum at first. Again, think about the context. This is a patient with kidney disease. They usually have, they may have more than one area of involvement. Um, they expand very rapidly and uh, they are very, very painful. Um, to make a diagnosis, because it's important to do this with a condition that has this kind of mortality rate, a biopsy may be necessary. Um, this is a condition really difficult, though, to always get a good biopsy diagnosis. What we're looking for is calcification around vessels in the adipose, so in the, the deep layers of the skin. So it requires a deep biopsy. And it turns out that that calcification is somewhat patchy uh, in the areas affected. So, it's, so we may miss an affected area with a punch biopsy. 
so the ideal biopsy is actually excisional, and you can imagine that that's a pretty challenging thing to do. These are very painful. They have a high rate of infection. Uh, they are hard to close. So as it, it, fortunately for some patients, for many patients, you can actually do plain films and see that calcium in the subcutaneous tissue. So that's another option for diagnosis um, to try and establish that without doing a biopsy. Um, sometimes you do have to do that to exclude other conditions in your, your thought process, but uh, consider some imaging studies as well to try and help uh, in the appropriate setting with somebody who has known end-stage kidney disease, abnormal calcium or phosphate levels, ulcers, and then x-ray changes, you would not need to do a, a tissue sample. To care for these patients, you need to make sure you're working closely with that patient's kidney specialist uh, so that they are optimizing, again, calcium and phosphate levels, kidney function, um, doing everything they can to make sure that this patient is uh, doing as well as they can from a kidney perspective. Uh, and then because of that really high mortality rate, it's important to get these people to somebody who treats this regularly um, and, and knows how to do so. We often treat with intravenous sodium thiosulfate, um, which is a medication that we don't really quite understand why it works, but it seems to be working, seems to work really well. Just in the last few years, there's been a lot more literature on that. Um, but this is something that, uh, that has this high mortality rate and is not something that's generally easy to manage um, without the patient getting some kind of inpatient or infusion center care. Uh, importantly, warfarin can actually be a cause or something that worsens this condition. So a lot of patients with uh, end-stage renal disease on dialysis are on warfarin. And just discussing this a little bit with their nephrologist too, you know, can we stop the warfarin? Is there something else that we can be doing? Acquired perforating disorders. These are not as common. Um, and these are things that when they are happening in just a few areas are easy to overlook. Um, but acquired perforating disorders are these conditions where you get these little dome-shaped papules or nodules that have this keratotic kind of firm plug in the center. Um, they're usually on the trunk and extremities. And they often will kebnerize, so you kind of see a little bit, there's some hyperpigmentation and excoriation, but they'll, they'll show up in lines where the patient has been scratching. They're itchy, um, and people tend to get crops of these little nodules, these keratotic nodules, that eventually go away and then new ones replace them. Uh, the, they occur because there are dermal structures that are getting broken down and being extruded up through the epidermis. That's what that plug is in the center. And why that starts happening is unclear. Um, they, perforating disorders are not unique to kidney disease, just more common in kidney disease. Um, but if people, if a patient comes in and has these itchy bumps with these little hard plugs, you can, you can biopsy it. It has histologic findings that the pathologist will say, yeah, we see this trans-epidermal elimination of this dermal, dermal stuff. Um, and so perforating disorders, when you see this, look into kidney health. 
Uh, it's a little more common in patients of African-American descent. It is strongly associated with diabetes and diabetic kidney disease, um, and it occurs in a significant proportion of patients who are on dialysis. And then the last condition that I'm going to talk about that's more common in patient with en patients with end-stage renal disease uh, is porphyria or a related condition called pseudoporphyria. Also fairly rare um, and can occur in patients who have healthy kidneys. So when you see this, it does not automatically indicate kidney disease. Porphyrias are a group of disorders that are caused by abnormalities in the heme biosynthetic pathway. Um, I, in school, would see these kinds of diagrams and panic, um, hating to memorize them. So you don't have to memorize them, but under, know that this is part of uh, a disorder of heme synthesis. Um, and there are a number of different types of porphyrias, each kind of characterized by abnormalities in different steps along this biosynthetic pathway. Um, and what happens is patients who have these uh, abnormalities in the biosynthetic pathway, depending on where that, that issue is occurring, can uh, have increases in, in chemicals called porphyrins, which are uh, absorb UV light and then cause uh, free radical damage and damage the tissues in which those porphyrins are accumulating. In these conditions, porphyria and pseudoporphyria, these accumulate in the skin, you get UV exposure, and that causes blistering on the skin. Um, and then I should mention the difference between these two, so porphyria and pseudoporphyria. Um, porphyria has specific tests you can do of the urine or the blood or the stool and see these accumulated uh, enzyme uh, or precursor products in that heme pathway. Pseudoporphyria, um, the patients will have blisters, and I'll show you how it looks, um, that it'll look clinically identical, but you'll have no lab abnormalities. And pseudoporphyria is caused by medications uh, that, that can trigger it that are a little more common, again, in people with kidney disease. So what does this look like? Porphyria causes skin blistering in sun-exposed areas, and in particular in sun-exposed areas that are subject to trauma. So we see it a lot. See the hands uh, as probably the most common location, and then the face. So all, the two areas that over a lifetime also get the most cumulative sun exposure. Uh, and they get these small blisters that break pretty easily because they're in areas of repetitive trauma, uh, and they resolve with milia. So you'll see a combination of blisters and milia. And when you see that combination, you should think about porphyria, when you see it in sun-exposed skin. Uh, they may or may not be symptomatic. They're not always uncomfortable. Um, but this is a classic finding of porphyria. And I think anytime we see blistering skin conditions, um, it's, it's an important thing to biopsy these to try and figure out why. Uh, and there are histopathologic features that your dermatopathologist will be able to recognize to help lead you towards this diagnosis as well. But blisters in a patient with end-stage kidney disease, think about this. Or if you get a pathology report back saying this could be porphyria or pseudoporphyria, look at their kidney health. Okay, so got through learning objective number one, some manifestations of 
chronic kidney disease, things we see more commonly in people with kidney disease. So let's talk about skin findings that are a clue to systemic inflammatory diseases that may also affect the kidneys. So we'll start this one off with a question as well. So which of the following systemic diseases is characterized by prominent skin and renal manifestations? Cesare syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, systemic lupus, Graves' disease, or urticaria pigmentosa? Terrific. Yes, the correct answer is lupus. Um, these other conditions can all have cutaneous manifestations, um, but kidney manifestations are not as common in any of the others as they are in systemic lupus. So let's talk about some conditions that have skin findings that may tip you off to go looking for kidney problems that may be more significant and affect this person's health long term. Um, vasculitides, inflammation of blood vessels. As I mentioned, lupus and other rheumatologic disease, systemic sclerosis. Um, systemic inflammatory diseases like sarcoidosis can have skin findings first that may tip you off that you need to look at the kidney health. Uh, and then a really fortunately uncommon condition called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis that I'll throw in there just so you have a picture of it. So vasculitis. We divide vasculitis or vasculitides. Um, we sort of classify them by how big of a blood vessel is being inflamed. So we have small vessel vasculitis, medium vessel vasculitis, and larger vessel vasculitis. And it's the small and medium vessel vasculitides that tend to have the skin and kidney overlap. Small vessel vasculitis is characterized by palpable purpura. So whenever you see palpable purpura, vasculitis should also just jump into your head with that same uh, terminology, palpable purpura vasculitis. They just go hand in hand. Um, if you want to confirm that this palpable purpura, that you have vasculitis, you have blood vessel inflammation, and it's a good idea to do so, you want to perform a biopsy. And you want to perform a biopsy for both routine histology, H&E, and for direct immunofluorescence. Um, and that's, sometimes we think, well, wait, 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 we do that for blistering diseases. Why are we doing this for vasculitis? Well, vasculitis is caused often by immune complex dep deposition in blood vessels, um, so you can find those immune complexes with direct immunofluorescence, just like you can find immunoglobulins in the skin in your bullous diseases. What's different about the biopsies that we do in vasculitis compared to a blistering disease um, is when we are trying to find out whether there's blood vessel inflammation, we want to biopsy lesional skin. When we're doing biopsies of blistering diseases, we often will biopsy unaffected perilesional skin. 
So for vasculitis, your goal is to biopsy the newest lesion you can. So ask the patient, you know, which one of these is newer? You don't want an old kind of resolving hyperpigmented or scabbed lesion. You want the newest ones they have um, and do a punch biopsy of those new ones of the lesion itself, both for your routine histology and your immunofluorescence. The reason to do this is because we want to find out whether there is, in particular, IgA immunoglobulin on that direct immunofluorescence. This is the most common type of small vessel vasculitis, IgA vessel vasculitis, in children. And in children, it has a really good prognosis. We call it Henoch-Schönlein purpura. It's often associated with abdominal and joint pain um, and frequently follows an infection and usually resolves spontaneously. In adults, however, if we see IgA deposition in that direct immunofluorescence biopsy and we diagnose an IgA small vessel vasculitis, these adult patients have a higher risk of having or developing maybe months down the road kidney disease. Um, So when we make this diagnosis, we check kidney status initially. The best test for checking kidney status is a urinalysis because you're going to find the earliest signs of kidney disease in a UA. You're going to see red blood cells, um, proteinuria. Um, So a urinalysis in addition to doing your serum studies, your blood studies, your creatinine, BUN. Uh, In adults, again, who have this, they may not develop kidney disease at the same time that they've developed their skin disease. It may actually come on several months later. So you need to make sure that these patients, even if all of their skin vasculitis clears up over the course of a month or so, you want to make sure that either you or their primary care doctor is continuing to monitor their kidney function. Um, Usually what we recommend is that they get their blood pressure checked and they do a UA and renal panel about once a month for the first six months. And if nothing has happened then, while they're, I guess, not 100% out of the woods, most of the time they're not going to have a problem. So you may not be caring for them after those first couple months because the the skin condition, uh, the skin aspects of it may resolve, but make sure that they are getting that follow-up. Another small vessel vasculitis, it's fairly uncommon, is called cryoglobulinemia, but it can look just like this and will have on direct immunofluorescence microscopy, immune deposits in the vessels. Often it's more IgM rather than IgA, um, and it is a type of vasculitis we see frequently in people who have malignancy, who have uh, autoimmune rheumatologic diseases, uh, or have had recent infections. So so another uh, type of vasculitis that can be associated with systemic problems and can affect both the skin and the kidneys, and they can look similar. So reason to do your biopsy when you see vasculitis is to help kind of distinguish these conditions, because clinically they look alike. Um, But anytime you see palpable purpura, think vasculitis, do a biopsy, and think about kidneys. Medium vessel vasculitis. The ones we're talking about here, more rare, polyarteritis nodosa, sometimes called PAN, can involve the skin and the kidneys. The ones that we call the ANCA 
vasculitides like granulomatosis with polyangiitis that used to be known as Wagner's granulomatosis and microscopic polyangiitis. So these median vessel vasculitides, not very common, but can affect the skin and may affect the skin as the presenting sign. Um, typically things we see in older individuals, usually patients are having systemic symptoms at the same time. They look a little bit different. There may be some of that palpable purpura, but you're also going to see some lesions that are a little more necrotic, a little more ulcerative. Often these eventually develop into bigger and deeper ulcers that can be pretty extensive. The lower extremity, again, is one of the very more common spots for all of these types of vasculitis. You want to do a biopsy to make this diagnosis as well. But this biopsy is always a little bit more challenging. You've got big ulcers and you're on the lower extremity, a place we all love to have to do a biopsy. Um, so what I recommend for biopsying these, you're going to get the best information of a biopsy that's caused by an inflammatory condition if you biopsy the edge of the ulcer. So kind of out here. And that's where you're going to do biopsies for your routine histology and your direct immunofluorescence. So out here on the edge of the ulcer. We can see ulcers for reasons other than vasculitis, of course. And one of the things when we see somebody with an ulcer, we may be worried that that ulcer is caused by infection. When that is in the differential diagnosis, you're going to get the best information from a biopsy of the center of the ulcer. That's where you're going to see the majority of that infectious material, the bacteria, the fungus, whatever it is. So if you're unsure, you don't have a good picture of which of these may be causing the ulcers, your ideal situation is to do three punch biopsies, two from the edge, one for routine histology, one for direct immunofluorescence, and then one routine histology biopsy that you might even split and send a portion of for tissue culture from the center of the ulcer. So that's the best way to kind of help you figure out what the cause of uh, an ulcer of unclear etiology is with your biopsies. So in addition to vasculitis that you might diagnose and find systemic manifestations for and the patient presents to you, patients can sometimes present to dermatologists with skin signs of lupus, and we may be the ones to make that diagnosis before anybody else as well. So lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease. It can affect almost any organ system. Um, and the kidney is one of the most common organs affected in systemic lupus. Almost 50% of patients with systemic lupus will have some degree of kidney involvement. Uh, typically, that occurs in the form of glomerulonephritis. And again, you're going to screen for that with urinalysis, where you're going to see red blood cell cast and proteinuria before you're actually going to see changes in the renal panel, serum renal panel. So there are a number of cutaneous findings of systemic lupus. The butterfly rashes, the one that's typical of what we call acute cutaneous lupus. So we see it in a patient here with 
lighter skin and then darker skin. It looks like a sunburn in a, on the cheeks and across the nose that spares the nasolabial folds. It occurs suddenly, generally after sun exposure, uh, and is kind of is flat, it's macular, uh, it's usually not scaly, it just looks like a bright red sunburn. When we see this rash, this finding, um, it is virtually always associated with systemic lupus, internal organ involvement. We don't see this very often because these patients usually present to their family doctors and get to a rheumatologist because it is so characteristic um, and our wait times are so long that they don't get into us and they're feeling sick, they're having systemic issues. Their systemic lupus is usually diagnosed before they see us. But if you see this rash, think about systemic lupus and do some screening for it. What we do tend to see a little bit more of and be the first ones to diagnose are what we call subacute and chronic cutaneous lupus. And that's what these images show here. This patient, the, the female patient here, has subacute cutaneous lupus. That's a condition characterized by annular scaly plaques in a photo distribution. Sometimes it can look a little like numular dermatitis or psoriasis, but it has a very distinct photo distribution where we see it on that upper neck, V of the neck, the face, the shoulders, the extensor surfaces of the arms. Um, and it is associated with systemic lupus in 15 to 20% of patients. They may not have these manifestations or signs of systemic lupus at the time of diagnosis, but if you follow them over time, about 15 to 20% of them develop overt systemic lupus. And so these are patients who need continued ongoing screening for signs of systemic lupus. The gentleman in the picture here on the right has discoid lupus. Discoid lupus most commonly occurs on the head and neck. And here you get these atrophic scarring plaques that have scale and erythema when they're active and then resolve with stark white dispigmentation and atrophy centrally and usually hyperpigmentation around the border. Uh, this type of skin lupus is much less commonly a sign of impending systemic lupus. It's probably only about 5% of these patients that will go on to develop true systemic disease. Um, but it's a type that we still screen for that and is important to recognize and treat early because this causes long-term permanent disfiguring scarring. So for the patients who have these types of cutaneous lupus, um, in addition to making sure they're getting a regular history and physical yearly with their family doctors, um, doing a yearly CBC, comprehensive metabolic profile, and urinalysis to look for internal organ involvement of lupus is important. Another rheumatologic disease that can present with the skin but may have kidney implications is systemic sclerosis or scleroderma. 
on autoimmune con connective tissue diseases that causes thickening of dermal collagen and fibrosis of the skin and fibrosis of internal organs. It can affect a multitude of internal organs as well. Um, renal involvement can occur. It's not the most common of the internal organs affected, um, but it, if that occurs, it can be life-threatening. Um, one of the things that you might read about is called scleroderma renal crisis. Uh, and for reasons that are unclear, patients with scleroderma can sometimes develop acute kidney failure after treatment with steroids, prednisone, even in doses as low as 20 milligrams a day. So you want to be cautious and talk to a patient's rheumatologist before treating a scleroderma patient with prednisone. What does systemic sclerosis look like? Well, this is that fibrosis. The most common pattern is for it to begin in the hands and feet and then progress proximally towards the center of the body. Um, so tightening of this skin of the hands and the feet, it feels very hard and woody, gets to the point where patients may not be able to fully flex or extend the fingers. Raynaud's phenomenon is another sign of systemic sclerosis. Telangiectasy, so little teeny blood vessels, almost look petechial all over the, the body, uh, are common in patients with systemic sclerosis. The skin can get this kind of salt and pepper hyperpigmentation and hypopigmentation pattern. See that a lot on the, the upper chest and upper back. Uh, and kind of looks shiny. Um, and that skin also starts to feel firm as the sclerosis spreads proximally. So um, if you see scleroderma, remember to keep kidney function in mind. These are patients that you will be managing with a rheumatologist as well because of all of the potential visceral complications. Sarcoidosis is a disease that dermatologists may be the first ones to diagnose as well. It's a systemic granulomatous disease that can affect almost any organ system as well. It is of unclear, unknown pathogenesis. The skin, lung, and eye are the three organs most commonly affected in sarcoidosis. Renal disease is less common but can occur. Um, and whenever we diagnose, sarcoidosis. We make sure our patients get in and see their internist or family physician for a thorough physical to assess any other organ involvement. We send them to an ophthalmologist for a good eye exam because they can get uveitis um, and often will kind of hold off on treatment until we're sure the full extent of their systemic disease. There are lots and lots of morphologies of sarcoidosis. It's one of those great mimickers that you can kind of put on your differential of lots of different skin findings. Um, the most common are these kind of reddish-brown papules or plaques. They're dermal. They're usually not scaly. Um, they're smooth, and they're usually not symptomatic. Patients usually aren't complaining of pain or itch. Um, they can occur anywhere. It tends to be very symmetrical. Um, the face is commonly involved. This finding here on the nose is one of the hallmarks of sarcoidosis um, called lupus pernio. has nothing to do with lupus, um, but it's called lupus pernio. But it's these kind of red-brown plaques on the rim of the, the ala of the nose. 
Um, so if you see this, you're going to need to do a biopsy to make this diagnosis. This is not a clinical diagnosis. It requires biopsy for confirmation. Um, and then another common skin manifestation of sarcoidosis is erythema nodosum. So those painful, kind of deep red plaques often on the lower extremity that are a sign of some type of systemic disease. Sarcoidosis is one of those systemic diseases that can trigger erythema nodosum. And then just so that you're aware that this exists, unfortunately, we are seeing less and less of it. Uh, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. This is a scleroderma-like condition uh, that turns out is caused by gadolinium-based contrast used in MRIs and MRAs. Um, it was something we were seeing a lot more of about 10 or 15 years ago. And then lots of smart people put, started talking together about what they were seeing and figured out gadolinium was the common thread in the patients who were getting this. So um, patients with kidney disease who get gadolinium contrast may develop this. And so now that, that um, contrast agent is not being used as routinely, um, but it causes fibrosis that can kind of look little subtle, um, start off with these sort of amoeboid fibrotic plaques that then become confluent and patients get contractures um, and fibrosis that can look a lot like scleroderma. Okay, genetic diseases can have skin and kidney manifestations. There's a lot of them. We're not going to talk about all of these. We'll talk about a couple of the common ones that we may see. We may be the ones to diagnose initially, and so it's important for us to make sure our patients know that their kidneys may be affected as well. So neurofibromatosis is one of those, especially if you see kids, although I've seen adult patients who did not have a diagnosis uh, into adulthood. Um, but neurofibromatosis causes skin manifestations that include neurofibromas, those kind of soft papules and plaques. They usually get lots of them when they have neurofibromatosis. They get cafe au lait macules, and this is one of the first findings that's seen in, in children. So children with multiple cafe au lait macules should be a sign to you to think of neurofibromatosis. Uh, and they also get this freckling in the groin and in the axilla. So those are skin findings typical of neurofibromatosis, which is a systemic genetic condition that can be associated with a number of other internal organ manifestations, um, but can cause kidney tumors and cysts. So that's the overlap between the kidney and this genetic disease. Another one that dermatologists may be the first to diagnose is called tuberous sclerosis, another genetic disease. Um, and in kids, they develop these facial papules um, a little before puberty. A lot of times kids are referred in for acne, but they're a little young to be getting acne. And these are all angiofibromas, fibrous papules. Uh, so that is the, one of the common early findings of tuberous sclerosis. They also get these hypopigmented patches and soft plaques on the skin. Uh, and when we see this, we need to make sure they're being referred back to the pediatrician for workup for a multitude of internal organ involvement uh, potentials, but kidney tumors being one of them. And then the last one of these that I want to talk about is called hereditary lyoma, lyoma, 
leiomyomatosis renal cell carcinoma syndrome. It's also known as weed syndrome. So this is one that I have seen a handful of times now, um, and it's one where we can make a really big difference. It's one that we usually see presenting in adulthood. So patients who have this syndrome develop leiomyomas. Leiomyomas are smooth muscle tumors on the skin that are usually small pink papules that may be tender or painful to the touch. Isolated leiomyomas are not uncommon, but if a patient has lots of them, lots of these pink papules, they're firm, you have to biopsy them to know that's what they are. Patients with multiple leiomyomas, you want to think about this syndrome. The syndrome is associated with a very high risk of renal cell carcinoma, so high that patients who have this are uh, recommended to have annual uh, imaging studies of their kidneys once this diagnosis is made for the rest of their lives, so MRIs or ultrasounds of their kidneys, uh, because that risk is so great. The other finding that goes along with this is uterine fibromas, so fibroids. Um, And a lot of times, uh, patients who present with this skin finding, if you go and ask them, they'll say, oh, yeah, I have have fibroids, or my mom had a hysterectomy at a young age for fibroids. Uh, So that's an important question to ask as well. There is genetic testing available for this condition. So if you diagnose somebody with multiple leiomyomas, you can have them get genetic testing, and if they have this Uh, disease, they will have routine screening of their kidneys to try to detect renal cancer early. This table is in your handout, so this is just kind of goes through those genetic diseases with a little bit more detail if you're interested. Okay. How about renal transplant patients? We see a lot of these patients in dermatology. One, solid organ transplantation is just becoming more common. But the reason that we are seeing, oh, before I do this, I'm sorry, let's stop. Kidney transplantations, here, let's do a question. Forgot I had one in there. Which of these growths is more common in a patient who have had a kidney transplant? Let's take a second to look at it. Okay. No, you're not alone. Because I'm going to make this place yours. Great. So the correct, (laughs) there's a kidney. I love it. It's a little walking kidney. (laughs) Uh, So the correct answer here is B. This is a skin cancer. Um, So I almost got carried away and and stole my own thunder here telling you why, why is it that we see all these patients with kidney transplants? It's because they have a higher incidence of skin cancer uh, because of their immunosuppression. So the risk is increased for all types of skin cancer, melanomas, basal cells, and greatest for squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, The risk increases in our transplant recipients with the dose and duration of their immunosuppression. So the more immunosuppressants they're on, the higher the dose, the longer they've been immunosuppressed, 
the higher their risk of skin cancer. These are patients that once they start getting skin cancers, you're going to follow more closely. This is not your annual skin check person. This is your every six months or maybe every three months, depending on uh, how, how many they're getting. Um, patients who had skin cancer before their transplant are at greater risk than patients who did not. So those who've already been getting AKs and basal cells and squames, you're going to follow more closely. Um, and um, patients who've had more sun damage in general beforehand, greater risk. Um, they tend to have more aggressive skin cancers. So these are the patients you want to be sure you are doing your lymph node exam after they've had a squamous cell carcinoma. They have a higher risk of metastatic disease. Um, and you want to do maybe annual skin exams starting right after a transplant, but you're going to shorten that duration if you're starting to find a lot of skin cancer or precancer. We also see viral or bacterial or infectious complications due to immunosuppression in the skin. We're seeing a lot of viral infections like warts and molluscum. So this is something we treat more commonly in our patients with uh, solid organ transplant. And as it turns out, drug eruptions are more common in people who are immunocompromised. So because these people are on these anti-rejection drugs, they may develop drug eruptions to a variety of different medications at a greater frequency than other patients. So that's another reason they come to our offices, so things to be aware of. There are medications that we prescribe that can have renal implications, so it's important to be aware of, of those when we're prescribing. So what are some of them? Cyclosporin is something we prescribe, sometimes for psoriasis or other inflammatory diseases. It can be associated with acute renal toxicity. The renal toxicity with cyclosporin is dose-dependent. If detected early, is reversible. Um, so any patient who is on cyclosporin needs close monitoring of their kidneys. Methotrexate can also cause kidney damage. It's not that common in the doses that we are using, perhaps for psoriasis. It's more likely in the higher chemotherapeutic diet, uh, uh, diet doses, but you want to check renal function in your methotrexate patients periodically. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. This is Bactrim. This is something we're prescribing for skin infections, and occasionally I see people using it for acne. Um, it is an antibiotic that can cause kidney problems. Um, if you have a patient who is on cyclosporin for an organ transplant and you're thinking about using Bactrim, you need to remember that it can lower their cyclosporin levels, and then they'd be at greater risk for transplant rejection. So things to think about when you're prescribing Bactrim. Tetracyclines, we use these all the time in our acne and rosacea patients. Um, the half-life of minocycline is increased in patients with renal failure, so you need to consider that with your dosing. It's probably a better choice to use doxycycline, um, which is not going to have uh, an effect or be affected by kidney disease. And then the last one that I think about us using a lot is spironolactone uh, for our acne patients or our patients with hirsutism. Um, we know that this medication helps retain potassium. It's a potassium-sparing diuretic. But if you have a patient whose kidneys aren't working appropriately and then you have them retain too much potassium um, by adding this medication, they can get into trouble. So 
while we may not routinely check potassium levels in young, healthy people getting spironolactone for acne, for example, for anybody who has pre-existing kidney disease, you're going to actually check that potassium level or, be, or may not even prescribe it. All right, we're down to our last learning objective. You know, everything there is to know about the skin and the kidneys. So renal cancer. We already talked about a number. We already talked about some skin findings that can be associated with renal cancer. We talked about that leiomyomatosis renal cell uh, cancer syndrome. And we talked about neurofibromatosis. And we talked about tuberous sclerosis. Um, Sometimes, however cutaneous metastases may be a presenting sign of a renal carcinoma. When this happens, the prognosis is pretty poor. Um, But renal cell carcinoma is one of those cancers that can metastasize to the skin. Um, And for some reason, the scalp is a common location for that to occur. Cutaneous metastases usually look like kind of purple nodules, maybe a little scaly, maybe friable. So that's that's what you're seeing, these purple nodules on the skin. You can't tell that this is a kidney cancer metastasis. Other tumors may metastasize to the skin and look similar. Um, But I think if you saw something like this, someone has this new onset of purple nodule or nodules, you're going to biopsy this and just keep that in the back of your mind, particularly if somebody's already had a history of cancer. Um, But it may be how their cancer presents. So... We have hit all of our learning objectives, I hope. Um, And I think that is where we will end. Oh, I've got one more question. All right, which of the following? Let's see if we've learned learned something here. Is the most likely diagnosis of this painful ulcer on the thigh? Is this nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, leukocytoclastic vasculitis, metastatic renal cell carcinoma, calciphylaxis, or perforating folliculitis? Great, 90% fantastic. This is calciphylaxis. This is that one we don't want to miss because of that high mortality rate in our patients who have end-stage kidney disease. So very good. Now I really will be at the end, and uh, we'll take questions. All right. It's a great idea to do those right at the end. I think that is really, really cool to do that. Um, I'm really glad they don't show the results, but I think it's really good that you collect it right while you're sitting here remembering the, the talks. Um, so question, do you use topical doxepin for itch management, promoxine, emollients, are they better than others? So um, I do use doxepin for itch management. You have to be a little careful in the elderly with doxepin. It can cause a lot of sedation and dizziness. Um, but doxepin can be a helpful antipyritic. Um, topicals like promoxine or um, agents that contain menthol can be soothing, and I use them an, a lot too. Are they better than just plain emollients? They may be. I mean, they do have some properties that are soothing to the skin, um, and, and I think it's worth, worth a trial. Can acupuncture be helpful for renal paritis? There was a small study that showed that improvement. What is my opinion? Um, maybe. 
Uh, I don't think we have enough data and probably never will to answer that question. Um, I am completely happy with my patients seeking acupuncture for assistance in uh, symptoms or skin problems that they're getting, but I, I don't think we have data to know whether it's that helpful, and I certainly wouldn't recommend that they go out and do it if they're not able to afford it or something like that. But if they want to add it, more power to them. Um, do half and half males always mean kidney disease? Not always, um, but very often. It's the most common reason to have a half and half male. Uh, can hyperpigmentation of chronic kidney disease also affect the appearance of melanocytic lesions? Um, it would not be something that I would think of changing the appearance of moles or nevi. So if you have a patient with chronic kidney disease who's noticing a change in a pigmented lesion, be just as suspicious of that change as you would in somebody who doesn't have chronic kidney disease uh, and, and biopsy it if you're worried. Atrophy blanche versus calciphylaxis. Does it often start off as atrophy blanche and progress to calciphylaxis? So atrophy blanche is a descriptive term for the sort of porcelain white, often little punched out scar-like areas we see in the lower legs in patients who have usually blood vessel occlusion or vasculopathy. So it's not specific to any one type of uh, skin disease. It's a finding. Uh, and calciphylaxis, actually, usually we don't see a lot of atrophy blanche. It's more this dusky, dull, stellate purple macule that rapidly expands, rapidly ulcerates. Can you see Lindsay nails on a, only a few fingers or will it be on all of them? Um, I've seen it in patients who have it on several fingers, not all of them. Uh, can you comment on calciphylaxis presentation versus antiphospholipid syndrome? That's a great question. They can look very similar. Antiphospholipid syndrome, an autoimmune disease where you get blockage of blood vessels and can get ulcers. Um, there are a lot of different ways antiphospholipid syndrome can present, one of which is ulcers. Um, I think this proximal presentation with um, the trunk and the proximal extremities uh, is much more characteristic of calciphylaxis than what we see with antiphospholipid syndrome, where it's usually uh, a little more common for it to be distal disease. What routine lab work do you get on refractory pruritic patients for the workup of chronic pruritus? Um, so I kind of had a list in there. There are a lot of different systemic diseases that can cause uh, pruritus. So I'll get a CBC looking for any sign of hematologic malignancy. Uh, I get a comprehensive metabolic panel to look at their liver and their kidney health. I check their thyroid. Um, Depending on my index of suspicion, I'll often check a S-pepicerum protein electrophoresis again, looking for hematologic malignancies, perhaps even order a chest x-ray. Um, that's kind of a, a starting point. I think it's really important that that patient get a very good physical exam so that anything that their doctor detects on exam or review of systems, they can follow up as well. Uh, do topical steroids help perforating disorders? Perforating disorders are hard to treat. Topical steroids may help with the itch. They aren't going to prevent new lesions from forming, um, but it's kind of a notoriously difficult uh, condition to treat. 
How do you manage a patient when you suspect calciphylaxis? Um, so this is where you want to biopsy to confirm or perhaps do radiologic studies. You want to confirm your diagnosis. You want to work closely with their nephrologist to make sure that their kidney health is optimized. Uh, and then, and you want to make sure they, they stop their warfarin, but you talk to their, their team, the, the rest of their healthcare team about that. Uh, and what I have been using first line for severe calciphylaxis is uh, intravenous sodium thiosulfate. Uh, is there a benefit to doing a DIF biopsy when diagnosing suspected porphyria? I think there is because um, when you are worried about porphyria, it's probably because you're seeing blisters. And it may be difficult to clinically know, is this porphyria or is it an autoimmune bullous disease? Um, so that DIF will help you distinguish between the two. In what stage of chronic kidney disease do you start seeing skin manifestations? Yeah, that first part of the talk was things more common in chronic kidney disease, and it does tend to be um, those manifestations more common when their GFR gets down below like 30 or so, so when they're more advanced. But you can see it in earlier stages of kidney disease. It's, it's just that the likelihood does definitely increase as their GFR goes down. Do you order a DIF in porphyria? We talked about that. Um, have you seen any evidence supporting the use of primrose oil for uremic pruritus? I live in Utah, which is the land of essential oils, and I have seen lots of oils used for lots of skin conditions and have yet to find any that I really think help specifically to any condition. Um, and we do see a lot of contact dermatitis, so I tend not to recommend essential oils. Um, if a patient wants to try them and they are not getting contact dermatitis, it's okay. Uh, with medium vessel vasculitis, what size punch biopsy do you perform, and do you attempt to close the sites with sutures? Um, I will usually do a four millimeter punch biopsy for my uh, immunofluorescence and my uh, routine histology, depending on the degree of ulceration and the skin health in the area I'm biopsying. Um, I may suture it. I also may use gel foam. Uh, do you use Plaquenil for discoid lupus with elevated ANA? Absolutely. Plaquenil is a fabulous drug for all types of lupus. All right. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Enjoy the rest of your meeting. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.